Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right, well, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. The 2010s were not a good decade for celebrity church culture. Not at all. All you got to do is just do a basic Google search for names like Mark Driscoll, Carl Lentz, Rave Zacharias, Brian Houston, Perry Noble, and I won't continue the list. But there's plenty out there. And you'll quickly find out why it was not a good decade for celebrity church culture. Those pastors and more were exposed for everything from bullying their congregations to unfaithfulness in their marriage to sexual abuse, addiction to substances, and the list goes on. There was a period of time where, at least to me, it felt like there was a new moral failure among church leaders in the headlines every other month. And much of that has continued on into this decade as well. And, you know, personally for me, as someone in a position of leadership within the church, it was really interesting to watch the, the wide range of responses that people had to those scandals. So some people, I think, immediately got defensive of those church leaders and their ministries. People would jump on their social media accounts to remind people how much good those leaders had done and how many of these accusations were probably uh, just them being unfairly accused. That is, until many of the accusations were proven to be 100% correct. And then for other people, I think the reaction sounded something more like, see, I told you. I told you that's what church leaders are like. For many people, these headlines just proved what they already believed to be true, that Christians in general and Christian leaders in particular are all just a bunch of hypocrites anyway. Of course these pastors did shady things. All pastors do that. We shouldn't have ever trusted them in the first place anyway. But I also think, at least for a lot of us, watching all these things play out within the global church, I I think it just left us with some questions. Questions like, how should we feel when stuff like this happens within the church? And and maybe more substantially, what does Jesus feel when things like this happen within the church? And, And then what is he doing, if anything, about all of it? Believe it or not, I think those are a few questions that our passage today speaks directly to. So last Sunday, if you were with us, we jumped back into our series through the book of Matthew in the Bible. We kicked it off with a story about Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem on a donkey and people celebrating him as the Messiah, this long-awaited, liberating king of God's people. And then we unpacked how Jesus both was and wasn't who they were expecting him to be. He was that in that he was the Messiah. He repeatedly claimed to be the Messiah, but he wasn't what they expected him to be in that he wasn't going to liberate Israel from Rome. That wasn't what he arrived to do. He was gonna liberate them from something else entirely. And I think today's passage is going to make that distinction all the more obvious for us. 
Because after entering Jerusalem, it turns out that Jesus does not march straight over to Pilate's governor palace and square off with the Roman soldiers who were keeping watch there. He doesn't do that at all. In fact, he engages in a different type of altercation altogether with the religious leaders of Israel at the temple. Now, to understand the significance of that decision, we're going to need a little bit of background on what the temple was and how it operated. Because otherwise, today's text is just a passage about Jesus breaking into a really nice building and making a mess, which is rude and interesting, but not all that spiritually significant, right? So I I had someone tell me once that this story, Jesus cleansing the temple, is about how you shouldn't sell like church merchandise in your church lobby. And I agree with the conclusion, but just because it's tacky. I don't like have a verse for that, right? Um, So I I think that what's going on in this passage is a little bit more in depth than that. I think we need a little more context to fully understand what was happening there that would make Jesus respond in this sort of way. So let's talk for a moment about the temple. The temple, at the time of the events in Matthew 21, was the epicenter of Jewish life in Jerusalem. It was also the epicenter of God's presence on earth in general. So when you and I today think about God's presence, chances are we think of God's presence as being everywhere, right? The theological word is omnipresence. God is everywhere at all times. And to some extent, ancient people thought that way about God too, But at the same time, they knew that if they wanted to meet with God, interact with God, commune with God, that all of that would have to happen at the temple. The temple in their minds was where heaven and earth overlapped. It was where God's presence on earth resided. It was where God came to meet with his people. But in order for him to do that, something else had to happen first, and that was sacrifices. The temple were where sacrifices were offered. So sacrifices were this sort of God-ordained way of grasping the holiness of God and the gravity of being in the presence of God. A sacrifice was a way of saying you understood that God's presence wasn't something to be taken lightly to say that you understood that your sin created separation between you and God. So what people would do at the temple is that it would bring some type of sacrifice. Generally, it was an animal. They would offer it at the sacrifice on the temple altar as a sacrifice to God. Now, usually they would be assisted in doing that by the temple priests. The priests were a group of people that were uniquely authorized to offer people's sacrifices on the temple altar. And they were familiar with all the regulations and procedures for doing that. They were basically facilitators. They facilitated people's worship at the temple. They helped people interact with God in that environment. They were meant to be helpful to the general population. And even if that whole process sounds completely foreign and strange to us today, which it likely does, It was just a normal part of Jewish life at the time of Jesus. This was all that they knew. This was how their relationship with God operated. And when the temple system was working as intended, it was a beautiful, intricate part of people's relationship with God. But just like any system that is run and operated by imperfect human beings, much of it became warped and distorted over time. 
Over time, the sacrificial system, the temple, and the priesthood that operated it became riddled with corruption and injustice. And in today's passage, we are going to discover exactly how Jesus feels about all of that and what he intends to do about it. So with that context in mind, start reading in our passage, Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. So the temple courts was the area surrounding the outside of the temple. The reason that area was significant is because of what was happening there. As we mentioned last Sunday, during this particular week of the year, Jewish people from all over the ancient world during this time would travel to Jerusalem where the temple was. And all of those people needed to offer sacrifices at the temple. But if you're traveling miles and miles by foot to get to Jerusalem, you're not going to bring an animal with you on the journey to offer as a sacrifice. That would make your trip unnecessarily cumbersome. Plus, who wants to make the whole journey with Fido by your side, knowing that Fido is about to go bye-bye, right? Just kidding. They wouldn't have brought dogs to the temple, you guys. Everybody calm down. I don't think they would offer dogs at the temple. Anyway, that is just cruel. So that's not what you would do. Instead of bringing a sacrifice with you, you would just wait and purchase a sacrifice once you arrived in Jerusalem at the temple. Hence the market in the temple courts. There, merchants would set up shop around the temple where people could purchase animals to offer as sacrifices. But there was another logistical hurdle as well. Most people were carrying currency from all over the ancient world, not money that could be used at the temple in Jerusalem. So they had to exchange their currency in order to purchase the sacrifices they needed, hence the money changers that Matthew talks about. Now, it's important that we realize none of these things were inherently corrupt or sinful in and of themselves. They were just practical arrangements that had, be, had to be made so that people could offer their sacrifices at the temple. They were all probably pretty helpful in their original form. But over time, they had become more and more corrupt. Over time, the temple courts became a place to take advantage of the fact that people had to offer sacrifices and that they didn't have any other way to purchase them once they were there. The price of sacrifices had gone through the roof to the point that they were basically price gouging people at the temple, especially the poor. So Matthew mentions specifically that Jesus turned over the tables of those selling doves. Doves were the sacrifice you would offer if you didn't have enough money to purchase anything else. Doves were supposed to be dirt cheap so that money was not a barrier to anyone wanting to worship at the temple. But evidently, these merchants had even inflated the price of doves, meaning they were taking advantage of the poorest of the poor. Plus, the exchange rate at the temple had climbed to an absolutely absurd level. So they were gouging people through the price that they paid for sacrifices and through the exchange rate that they had set. Every chance they got, they were taking advantage of people who were simply there to worship. And who do you think likely benefited financially from all of this price gouging at the temple? The ones in charge of the temple the temple priests. They, in all likelihood, got a significant cut from all of this that was happening in the temple courts. 
So Jesus, suffice it to say, is not a fan of any of this. In fact, he's quite frustrated by it, frustrated to the point that he enters the temple and begins driving out everyone involved in the whole process. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus did this with a whip that he made himself. So that's exciting. But Jesus just systematically works his way through the temple courts, driving out the merchants, driving out all of the animals there, cracking the whip, turning over the tables where they were selling and exchanging money. Quite the scene. So I'm picturing like animals running away terrified from the whip, money everywhere all over the ground, people confused about what exactly is happening, children in the temple courts laughing because they find the whole thing hilarious most likely, like just pure chaos this day in the temple courts. But remember the reason for all of this. Jesus is furious. He is indignant at what the temple has become. It was intended to be a place where people from all over the world could come and offer sacrifices in worship to God. But instead, it had become a place where barrier after barrier after barrier was being set up to prevent people from worshiping God or bare minimum to make it incredibly difficult for them to do so. Nowadays, if, if you wanted to worship at the temple, you had to jump through a lot of hoops and spend ridiculous amounts of money in order to do it. In many ways, the temple had become precisely the opposite of what God intended the temple to be. And directly responsible for all of this twisting and distorting of the temple system were the priests, some of whom are called the chief priests that Jesus interacts with just a bit later in the passage. The priests were the ones tasked with making sure that the temple functioned properly, that it operated the way that God wanted it to operate. But by this time in the story, they had instead become strict gatekeepers around the temple. They had begun to pick and choose themselves who could and couldn't have access to God based on really arbitrary factors like how much money you had and what sacrifices you could afford. So can you see why Jesus is infuriated by all of this? There are few things that anger the heart of God more than unnecessary barriers being placed between him and his people. And all of that is the basis of Jesus' critique in verse 13. Look with me there. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus quotes from two different Old Testament passages, one from Isaiah, one from Jeremiah. He says that his house, i.e. the temple, was supposed to be a house of prayer, a place where his people could come and commune with God, worship him, pray to him, interact with him. And instead, it has become a den of robbers, a place where people are being stolen from and taken advantage of and oppressed and inhibited in their access to God. Jesus is infuriated by all of this, and he wants it to stop immediately. He wants the temple to return to what God created the temple to be, which is in many ways what he does next. Look with me at verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. Now, traditionally, people like this were not allowed anywhere close to the temple altar. But here, Jesus not only welcomes them in, he heals them. 
He takes away any barrier that exists between them and God. So notice the contrast here. The temple priests were making it harder for people to worship at the temple. Jesus makes it easier than it's ever been. The, the priests are constructing obstacles between people and God. Jesus clears the obstacles out of the way. In a very tangible sort of way, he is giving people a glimpse of what God created the temple to be all along, what he intended the temple to be all along. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that Jesus did and the children shouting in the temple courts, I told you there were children there, the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they, the chief priests and teachers of the law, they were indignant about it. At this point, evidently, even children in the temple courts are recognizing who Jesus is and the significance of all of it. Son of David, as we mentioned last week, was a title that Jewish people reserved for the Messiah. Hosanna means God save us. So they're crying out all of this upon seeing Jesus, but the powers that be at the temple do not like any of this at all. For them, it is blasphemous for these children to call Jesus things like this. And if they thought that was blasphemous, they're really not going to like what Jesus says next. Verse 16, do you hear what these children are saying? They, that is the chief priest, asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? Okay, here's why they're not going to like that comment from Jesus. First, Jesus just asked a group of people who find their identity and how much Bible they know if they've ever read their Bibles before. So that's uncomfortable. But second, they're not going to like what Jesus says here because the verse Jesus just quoted is a psalm about how even children will worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. The chief priests just didn't like that the children were calling Jesus the Messiah. Jesus just suggested that he's not just the Messiah sent by God, he is God himself, which means it is right for the children to worship him as such which to the chief priests and teachers of the law is the blasphemy of all blasphemies. Jesus is pulling out all the stops here, no stone left unturned in offending the sensibilities of the religious establishment. In fact, the Gospel of Mark tells us that it was after this very interaction that the chief priests and the teachers of the law started plotting how they might kill Jesus. This, in many ways, is the last straw in their minds towards Jesus. He has just struck at the very center of their identity and their livelihood, the religious system that they had poured their life into from their perspective is under attack. Jesus comes in and he upends it all because they had allowed the temple to become something it wasn't supposed to be. But they don't see that. They think that Jesus is tearing down what God set up. But at least right now, Jesus is just tearing down what they made out of what God set up. Okay, so this one's for free. But as Christians, sometimes we have to realize that people critiquing what we made out of our faith is not the same thing as them critiquing our faith. I'm going to say it again. People attacking what we made out of our faith 
is not the same thing as them attacking our faith. There are times where people are indeed attacking our faith in Jesus, and that is frustrating and disappointing even if it is to be expected in the world we live in. But there are other times where people are simply critiquing what we have allowed our faith to become. They're critiquing the parts of our faith that are not actually consistent with what we claim to believe. And when people do that, sometimes I think we would do well to listen to their critique. But because the chief priests do not understand the difference between those two things, they in turn want to kill Jesus for what he is saying and doing. Which is probably why Jesus has to get out of town for a bit. Look at verse 17 with me. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again, and immediately the tree withered. Now we can be honest, this feels a bit weird, doesn't it? just a tad. So after the whole thing at the temple, Jesus goes out of the city to spend the night. And on the way back into the city, he curses a tree for not having fruit on it. On the surface, this feels like baffling behavior to us. Kind of makes it sound like Jesus was just having a bad day and chose to take all his frustrations out on a tree. (laughs) What makes it even weirder, I think, is the fact that this is the only time we have on record of Jesus doing a mean miracle. (laughs) Right? Like every other time that Jesus does a miracle in the Gospels, he heals someone. He restores someone's sight. He multiplies food to feed thousands of people. This is the only time that we have on record of a miracle that Jesus did that seems to harm instead of help. So we have a couple options on how we can make sense of a passage like this. We we could just chalk it up to Jesus being in a grumpy mood. We could say that Jesus gets hangry just like we get hangry. And sometimes he evidently he gets hangry enough that he calls down curses on trees for not having food on them. That's one option for how we could interpret this passage. The other option is that we could ask if there's some amount of context we are missing for understanding what happens in the story. I would argue that's the better option. In fact, just as a general Bible reading tip, anytime you read something weird in the Bible, just baffling, something that feels completely random, completely out of context, and honestly a little bit out of character for the people in the story, I think it is always good to ask in those moments, what am I missing? What bit of context am I missing here? And often, there will be clues in the passage itself that will help you sort it out. So, what clues are we given in this passage? Well, first, Matthew tells us the specific type of tree that Jesus interacts with. Anybody remember what kind of tree it was? A fig tree. That feels like a little more detail than we need if the point was just to show Jesus getting angry at a tree, right? Could have been any kind of tree if that was the point. But we're told in the story that it was specifically a fig tree. So is there anything significant about fig trees in the Bible? Well, if you just do a search for figs or fig trees in your Bible app, 
it will likely come back with quite a few results, specifically in the Old Testament prophets. Specifically in the Old Testament, a fig tree was sometimes used as a metaphor for the nation of Israel, the people of God, and specifically for the leaders of the nation of Israel. When, when God goes to his people or the leaders of his people expecting righteousness and goodness and truth and justice and instead finds injustice and corruption, the Old Testament prophets will often compare that experience to a person who walks up to a fig tree expecting figs and doesn't find any there. So here's my question. Do you think Jesus, who was steeped in the Old Testament, had in mind passages like that one when he cursed the fig tree in this story. I would be willing to bet that he did. So think about it. Jesus has just gone to the temple, which God designed as a place of righteousness and goodness and truth and justice. And instead, when he went to the temple, what he found was corruption and sin and injustice there. So I would imagine that this is not so much a destructive miracle from Jesus as it is a symbolic one. He came to the temple expecting to find righteousness there and instead found unrighteousness. And because of that, this for Jesus is the final straw for the temple itself. I think Jesus is foreshadowing for us here that the temple itself will soon be destroyed much like the fig tree was. Which as it turns out, is exactly what happens. The temple will soon be destroyed, both literally by Rome, we'll talk about that in a second, and figuratively as the primary way that people interact with God. But I think all of this helps us understand the interaction that follows this event. So pick it back up with me in verse 20. Let's close out this passage together and then we'll talk for a bit about what it all means. When the disciples saw this, meaning when they saw what happened to the fig tree, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied to them, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, to some people, they read this part of the story as just a generalized teaching from Jesus on the power of prayer. And I'm all for the power of prayer. Jesus, too, is all for the power of prayer. He even says elsewhere that prayer can indeed move mountains, figuratively speaking. But I'm inclined to think that here, in this passage, Jesus is actually talking about something more specific than that. In fact, I think Jesus is talking about a specific mountain when he talks about this. So remember his language in the story. This mountain. doesn't say a mountain. He says this mountain. So think about the context of the story with me. We're told that Jesus and the disciples are outside of the city of Jerusalem to the east, and they are walking back into the city. The next passage is going to tell us that they were specifically headed back to the temple where Jesus was going to do some teaching in the temple courts, which means that at this point in the story, right in front of them, clear as day, would have been what was called the temple mount the hill in Jerusalem that the temple sat on top of. 
I think that when Jesus says, you can say to this mountain, be uprooted and thrown down, that's because it really will be thrown down. I think Jesus is again alluding to the fact that the temple's days are numbered in Jerusalem. Historically speaking, in the very near future, that very temple that they went to will be toppled. Roman armies will lay siege to it and level it to the ground. The temple will be no more. But Jesus is making the point here in this passage that though on the surface that seems like the actions of the Roman Empire, it is actually a demonstration of God's judgment on the temple itself, on how corrupt the temple and its leaders have become, on how it had come to embody the very opposite of what God intended it to be. And not only does that make Jesus angry, it makes him angry enough that he decides to condemn the temple to destruction altogether. Okay, how's everybody doing? You awake? Some of you are like, I'm barely awake at this point. Barely awake. So I realize that was a lot of information to take in, but before we're done, what I'd like to do is take a step back and try to discern what all of this might mean for us today. As I mentioned at the very beginning of the teaching, I think this passage gives us lenses today for how God feels about corruption and injustice and sin within the church. Here's why I say that. One of the things that the New Testament makes abundantly clear is that in many ways, the temple of Jesus' day has now been replaced by the church, the community of God's people. We are the new temple. Today, God's presence doesn't reside in the physical structure of the temple in Jerusalem, but rather within the community of believers gathered in Jesus' name. Now, that has quite a few practical implications, all of which we don't have time to get into this morning. But I think one thing we can conclude from all of that is that Jesus likely feels much the same way about corruption within the church that he did about corruption in the temple. Anytime there are corrupt leaders benefiting themselves, all the while making it more difficult for people to come and know and worship Jesus, you can be sure that Jesus is deeply frustrated by that. But listen, it's not just that Jesus feels a certain way about it, it's that he does something about it. Quite a few Bible translations actually put a heading over this story about the temple in Matthew. In your Bible, it might say something like Jesus cleanses the temple or Jesus purifies the temple. That's because Jesus was doing precisely that in the story. He was purifying, he was cleansing the temple. And make no mistake about it, even today, Jesus is still purifying and cleansing his temple, the church. He is doing it by exposing corrupt leaders within the church. He's doing it by removing them from positions of authority where they currently stand. And he's doing it sometimes even by closing churches that no longer represent what he is about. I want to be very clear, that's not the case every time a church is, a church is closed. And not every church that should close ends up closing. But sometimes that is precisely what is happening. And often when God does those sorts of things, I think we often respond by either defending that ministry or that leader as if they can do no wrong, 
or by losing faith and trust in the institution of the church altogether. Those are generally the two responses that happen. But to me, it feels like there is a third, far more hopeful explanation for what is happening in those types of moments. God is purifying his church. He's ridding it of the things that don't represent him and restoring it to what he meant it to be. And sometimes that is not pretty when it happens. It was not pretty at all that day in the temple. But it is sometimes necessary. And when all of that returns the church to what God intended the church to be, it is a beautiful thing regardless of how messy it is. So maybe instead of us as followers of Jesus responding with defensiveness or responding with dismissal or hopelessness, maybe at times we should respond with gratitude for anything that God uses to purify his church. I'll even put it this way. I pray that this never happens. But if there ever comes a day when I or any of the other leaders here at City Church, or City Church as a whole, no longer embodies the things that Jesus says his church should be about. I pray that God will shut me, or us, or our church down, that he would take us out of the picture if that's what he sees fit. Because this isn't my church, it's not about me, it's not about any other leader here, it's not even about City Church in general. It's about God's church. And he gets to do with it what he sees fit. But here's the uncomfortable part for all of us. In this new version of the temple called the church, we cannot blame everything wrong with the church on its leaders. Church leaders have a responsibility to lead their churches in healthy ways, to be sure. But at the same time, in the New Testament vision of the church, there are no longer any priests. There are no longer those that stand between regular people and God in order to mediate between the two. That doesn't happen anymore. The New Testament actually says that all of us as followers of Jesus are the priests. God is making us, regular followers of Jesus, into what Peter calls in his letter a royal priesthood. All of us. And that means first that we all have direct access to God through Jesus. We don't need anyone to mediate that for us. But second, it means that with great power comes great responsibility. And yes, that is a quote from (laughs) Spider-Man. But do you see what this is saying? Because we are all now the priests... That means each of us have the ability to shape the community we're a part of for the better and for the worse. Every posture of your heart right now, good and bad, is shaping our church into something as a result. Every word out of your mouth to or about another person is shaping our church into something. Every way that you deal with conflict between you and other people or neglect to deal with it is shaping our church into something. 
Every way that you do or don't pour into other people and help them become more like Jesus as a result, that is shaping our church into something as a result. Do you see the monumental responsibility that this is? Even your repeated refusal to be an active part of a local church shapes the church globally into something. First Peter, in that very same passage I just mentioned that calls us priests, it also calls us living stones, as in the stones that God is using to build a new type of temple for the world. Every person in this room who claims to be a follower of Jesus is now a part of the new temple that God is building, which means every person in this room now has a role to play in helping the church become who God made it to be and in helping prevent it from coming, becoming things that it was not created to be. So here's the unpleasant part. If we truly want Jesus to purify his church, if we want him to cleanse it and make it more and more what he designed it to be all along, that means we are going to have to be open to the process of him purifying us individually. If we want to see the church return to what it is supposed to be, that means we need to consider the possibility that we may need to do some returning ourselves. If we want to see revival happen in the church, that means we need to let revival happen in our own hearts first. In our postures, in our attitudes, in our willingness to serve and sacrifice and put others ahead of ourselves, and in our willingness to be an active part of communities that are and always will be imperfect. And doing that is going to involve us returning time and time and time again to the good news of Jesus. Here's the entire context of that passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. Take a look with me on the screen. As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. That's the same word that Jesus used today when he said that the temple was a house of prayer. You're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. To become the house that Jesus made us to be, to become the house of prayer and communion with God that God intended the church to be, to be a holy priesthood offering sacrifices to God in worship today. To be all of that, we must never, ever, ever lose sight of Jesus. We must never, ever lose sight of the gospel that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is where all of this begins and ends. It's where the ability to become the living temple of God comes from by knowing that Jesus through the cross has made it all possible for us. By understanding that this whole thing is about him. It's about people coming to know and love and worship and interact with him. It's not about serving ourselves. It's not about making much of ourselves. It's not about turning the church into what we personally think it should be. It's about making much of Jesus and becoming what he wants his church to be. 
So every week, we go to the tables together and we remember what Jesus did to make that idea a reality. We remember that his body was broken and his blood was spilled on the cross for our behalf that we might become everything that he created us to be. Together, that we might become the temple of the living God together, a house of prayer for all nations. That's our goal. That's who we want to be. Let's ask that God would make that true of us. Let's pray together.